If you have your Bible, open to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. That's where we will be today. And um, I hope that you are eager to be in the Word of God today and study the Word of God and apply the Word of God to your lives. Amen? Amen. Remember our vision statement that we came up with probably two years ago, just to remind you about that. To now that we have our new logo, we're hoping to uh, put that out there a lot more. You'll be seeing that over the next several months. We're just trying to slowly phase that into every aspect of our lives. But our vision statement is driven by the Word of God, transformed by the Spirit of God, and sent by the Son of God to do what? Make disciples of all nations. Say that with me together. Make disciples of all nations. That's what we're here to do. We're not here to just come here and have a, have a religious pep talk every week or come here and see me preach or hear Colton preach or hear Clayton preach. We are here to make disciples. You are to be discipled and then we are to become a disciple and then we go and what do we do? We make disciples. That's what this is all about. And uh, the American church has not done a really great job at that over the past two or three generations. It just hasn't. And so we're trying to turn that around and to make things better. And one of the ways in which that happens is by maturity in the Word of God, learning the Word of God, which is one of the reasons why we, we teach the way we do through whole books of the Bible. And hopefully once we get done with the book of Luke, you'll never, you, you, you will know the book of Luke better than you have ever known it in your life. That's the whole purpose of this, amen, is to know the Word of God. So you can apply the Word of God and live the Word of God and be pleasing to God Almighty. Last week, last week we got this scathing, heard this scathing passage from Jesus about the judgment that was coming upon these unrepentant, these unrepentant cities, I almost said sinners, amen? Uh, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? you shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So what Jesus is preparing them for is the judgment that is coming upon those who reject their message to these cities. Rejecting the gospel is about as serious as it gets. There is another entire life that is coming. Do you realize that? There's another time that is coming. Most people, I don't think, really believe it anymore. But I do. And people that believe in the Bible do. People that believe in God, they do believe that. There will be a time when this, when this life and this world comes to an end. And God will establish judgment. And at that time, his children, those that have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, will be We'll be, go, we'll be going to heaven to be with Jesus and God for all eternity. Those that have rejected him, that have rejected Jesus Christ, will go to a place of eternal torment that you do not hear about too much anymore from pulpits because it does not feel good preaching. But it is absolutely the truth. And what is that place called? It is absolutely true. It absolutely exists if you believe what the word of God says. If you don't believe what the word of God says, just believe whatever you want to believe because it doesn't matter. But the word of God is very clear. So as he prepares these 72 missionaries, I'm going to trample all over my coat. As he prepares these 72 missionaries, one of the things that he prepares them for when they go to these cities, all these different, these different cities, 
is for the acceptance by some of the gospel message, the acceptance by some, and unfortunately and regrettably, the rejection of others. And what he is saying in this message is that for the judgment that is to come, for the Jewish cities, the Capernaum, and these other areas, Chorazin, these other areas that, that Jesus spent lots of time in ministering and raising people from the dead and healing people of illnesses, that the judgment for those that have rejected him that went there will be more severe than pagan, Gentile, wicked cities judgment will be. And that is a hard, as my mother would say, that is a hard pill to swallow. But it is. And then we ended by asking the question, how do we compare as America? Thinking about that. What would Jesus say about us? Are we more like Capernaum or Tyre and Sidon? And so when you think about America, we have to think about all these things. There's churches everywhere, specific, especially in the southeast and the southwest, this whole the Bible belt we call it. And the, and the witness of the gospel continues to expand northward. Thank, thank God for some good, faithful church planters. There's Christians living in just about every neighborhood. The gospel is in all different denominational expressions, is flowing full speed, full speed, on radio, internet, and television. Online commentaries, online sermons, online conferences, social media, there are more ways, arguably, in America to hear the gospel than almost anywhere in the world. Yet, how committed is the average Christian in America to Jesus? How quickly do we kick work aside for some pursuit of pleasure or leisure? How quick do we kick it aside? And I'm as guilty as anybody, as guilty as anybody. Jesus had prepped these 72 missionaries for their journey with these shockingly harsh words. And he gives us these same words as we go out. And now today, the passage we look at today in verses 17 through 20, these missionaries that have now been sent out with this commission, now they come back. And Jesus speaks to them again. So join me in verse 17 of Luke chapter 10. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I, know, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Wow. How about that passage? Amen? That's strong, that's strong preaching from your Savior and mine, Jesus Christ. Verse 17. The missionaries return joyfully, not joylessly, right? Joyfully, they come back. Again, I like to hit on this because this was, this was new for me. I did not know this, what I'm about to tell you, and I love learning new things about the Scripture. Can you amen that? I love it when I learn something new I didn't know. Love it. That is one of the reasons why I'm in this. Why 72 missionaries? That was a question that I've always wondered, and I got a very good answer. The clearest theological connection is the table of nations from Genesis chapter 10. That's what many scholars believe Jesus is connecting to that to help us understand what's going on here. 
In that table of Genesis 10, the Bible outlines 72 nations that descended from Noah after the flood receded and the ark landed at Mount Ararat. God gave Noah and his family the commandment to do what? Be fruitful and what? Multiply, exactly. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Okay, connect, go back to Jesus. It seems Christ is connecting to that covenantal structure to show that two missionaries are being sent to every nation on Christ's command to multiply disciples all over the earth. Do you see that? I thought that was really, really, really special and neat. So the missionaries come back from that journey. Now, we're not told uh, how long they were gone. We're not told exactly precisely what city uh, that, they, that they went to, but we are told when they return, they are joyful and exuberant. Just, just happy and joyful over this mission trip. Now, now, we could have imagined, we could have imagined it doing what? Going the opposite direction, perhaps, yes? That maybe they went out on this missionary journey and it utterly failed and they came back defeated and they came back miserable. You know, Jesus, you know, I'm going to quit. Jesus, don't call me. I'll call you. I've had it with this Christian mission and this gospel. But why didn't this happen? Why didn't that happen? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus had trained them properly for what was coming. You know, good training can make all the difference in the world. Can you amen that? It can. I mean, good training can make a big difference. And Jesus had trained them. Do you remember what the things that he said, some of the things he said? He said, the heart but the workers are few. He said, I send you out as lambs among who? Wolves. Take nothing with you. Don't jump around from house to house. Heal the sick. Preach the kingdom of God. If you're not received in the town, pronounce judgment on that town. I mean, it's not the most uplifting commission. Amen? I mean, it's just not the most uplifting commission. It's almost like Isaiah. Go, Isaiah, and preach. How long, Lord? Until the cities are laid waste. In other words, how many, how many converts are you going to have? Zero. Or like he told Paul, Paul, I will call you, you will be my emissary to the Gentiles, and I will show you what you must suffer. Wow, thanks, Lord. Thank you. So not the most uplifting commission, so they were, they were prepped for the hardship when they went. This was not going to be an easy road. They knew that going out. And so therefore, when things went good, instead of being difficult, because they were properly trained, they were exuberant and joyful about it. Which is why what comes out of this pulpit has to be the truth and not some some sugar-coated lie, amen? To prep you for what's out there. To properly prep you. So why are they so joyful? Well, the reason is found in their own words. It's found in their own words. For out of the heart, the mouth speaks. They said, Lord, even the demons, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, that's interesting. Because when you look back from their commission from Jesus, expelling demons was nowhere listed in the details. Did you see that? It was with the original 12 apostles. That was the first thing that he said. He told them immediately that they would have the power to expel demons, power and authority to drive cure diseases. So it seems he gave the same power to the 72 missionaries, but didn't tell them that they had the power. Now, why would that be? 
Why would that be that he didn't tell them? Well, Jesus let the 72, they let the 72 discover that they had that power on their own and surprised them with that. I mean, if they had gone out knowing that they had that power, what may have they, what may have they done? Abused it? Been on a power trip? Who knows? Who knows what they would have done? I mean, could you imagine not knowing you had that power and then suddenly using it and witness a demon flee from someone's spirit? Could you imagine that? How freaky would that be? You know, my father used to be amazed at some of his employees from time to time how they would accomplish things that he didn't think that they could. And I would ask him, I would say, Dad, how did, how did Mr. Herman, that was one guy who was always just a little, little bitty dude that was from Greenville, but he always could just accomplish amazing things for my dad's business. And I would say, Dad, how does Mr. Herman, how does he, how does he accomplish all this stuff? And my dad would always say this, and it just it fits right here. Because he didn't know that he couldn't do it. That's maybe how we need to be as Christians sometimes. To not know that we can't do it. To do things that we feel like maybe are outside the realm of possibility because all things are possible with who? God. To be that way and to think that way. To think that God wants to achieve the impossible through us. Because he does and he will. So these 72 missionaries all return joyfully. Now, now let me give you just a little, a little gut check as before we leave this point. Notice these disciples are energized and excited about what they have experienced on their journey. They're, 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 not, they're not burned out. They're not mad. They're not disgruntled. They're not down in the dumps. They're not frustrated. They're, they're not complaining. They're joyful after coming back from their first mission trip. I mean, are you joyful about what goes on in Christ's church? Or do you consider it drudgery, honestly? I mean, I'm just curious. How, how, do we, how do we feel about that on a daily basis? I mean, the Christian walk is overall very challenging and very hard, but it's also supposed to be very joyful, very joyful. And my question has always been is that if that's the case, why do so many of us not experience joy, especially those of us that have been lifelong Christians? I mean, we seem miserable and we seem like we're having to be drugged to this place, just, just forced to sit through, you know, these long, boring sermons. I mean, you know, you should come with great anticipation to the house of God. You should leave with great eager anticipation from the house of God when you go back into the marketplace and into the mission field. So why do so many of us just, just strain and have such difficulty being joyful? I, I don't know that I know the answer about that. Spiritual grievances in our own lives, uh, unre sin not repented from, I, I, I don't know. I can only speak for myself. And the times that I have been like that, it's because my prayer life has suffered or I've got some unrepentant sin in my life or I'm doing something I know I shouldn't be doing. And then once I get all that cleansed out and go to the Lord and repentance and, and, and confession, it, it all gets better, amen? I mean, all of us go through that. But why are we not more joyful? So the missionaries return joyfully, joyfully not joyously. All right, let's go to verse 18. This is the one you've been waiting on. 
And then just, just almost like out of the blue, Christ gives them this jaw-dropping statement. They're coming back, they're joyous, and they're talking. says what? I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. <laughs> Woo! I mean, where do we go from here, amen? <laughs> I mean, where do we go from here? Well, well let me tell you where I, where I want to go from here. Number one, and, and I mean, I hope everybody on live feed, I hope everybody hears this, and, and I, I, I hope that you remember it, and I hope you have the courage to share it with your, with your friends and your family members. I mean, I mean, the Christmas season, the Halloween, I mean, Halloween season, the, the no, November Thanksgiving season is coming up. You, you're going to be around all types of family members and friends. You're going to have pagans. You're going to have heretical people that are professing Christ that are wrong. You're going to have all kind of stuff. You've got to have the boldness about you to speak the truth. How? In love. Now, don't be a jerk. Amen? we got enough of those running around out there. Amen? Plenty of them running. Plenty, an oversupply of them running around. Truth and love. Say these words. Satan is real. Yeah. Satan is real. And I know that, I know that, because I have to deal with him on a regular basis, amen? I have to deal with him in my own life, in my own person, the carnal ways that he tries to tempt me and trip me up. I have to deal with it in my family a lot of times, amen? We all do. And then I have to help other people deal with him. I mean, that's basically what the church is. This is a military operation, an army of saints that is fighting an army of demons. This is spiritual warfare, amen? That's what this is. Satan is absolutely, positively real. Do not listen to what anybody else tells you. I don't care how good of a friend they are. I don't care how self-made they are. I don't care how many PhDs or whatever curly cues they have after their last name. If they tell you that Satan doesn't exist, do not believe them. They, I don't care how smart they are, they're wrong about that. Wrong. Satan is real. I mean, I've known people throughout my life that don't even believe there is a good and an evil. Yeah. Don't believe in right and wrong. I mean, all you've got to do is turn the TV on and the evidence is right there. I mean, how many shootings do we have to see to believe that there is an enemy called Satan that is trying to destroy and kill? How many times do we have to see that? How many times? He's real. So who is Satan? For those of you that are listening today, I thought maybe I would just give you some basic Christian theology on this. Satan was a holy angel. So when he was created, how was he created? Good. Good. He was created holy, and he was created good, and he rebelled against God. His name that you've heard so many times is Lucifer, and that is the Latin translation of a Hebrew word that means, get this, light bearer, which is probably what Paul meant when he said Satan masquerades as an angel of what? Light. That's how all that connects. 
He rebelled against God, was thrown out of heaven. He is known as Satan, and those angels that followed him in disobedience are known as demons. And let me give you some more freaky stuff. Right now, as we gather as the church of Jesus Christ, you know who is watching us at this very moment right now? No, not your dead relatives. Not them. I hope to God they can't see us, amen? Okay. Demons and angels are watching us as we speak. The heavenly host, along with God. Parable of the sower says that the, the, hard, the hard heart is the one where the word of God goes out and the birds are standing close by and, the, and the, 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 the seed hits the soil, it's too hard, and then the birds come along and eat it. The bird Jesus uses speaks of the birds metaphorically as Satan and his, and his, and his minions. So if you don't think he is, his minions are among us right now trying to confuse you, trying to distract you, trying to make you hate me, or whatever. He's trying to do everything he can to keep you from listening and understanding and being filled with God's spirit, being saved. That's what he does. That's what he does. That's who he is. That's his nature. Satan's not a good guy. Amen? He's not a good guy. There's no way you can take southern hospitality and make Satan a, a, a good fellow, a good guy. He ain't in the good old boy network, amen? That ain't him. He's the There's a couple of passages in the Old Testament that you need to be familiar with if you're not. One of them is Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. Now, this passage right here is actually clearly in the Old Testament talking about the king of Babylon's fall, but in prophetical literature, the, the, the miracle and the mystery of God's word is, is that through the apostolic witness and through theological studies, we can look at the scripture behind the scripture to the power that is behind the man that's on the throne. And in this case, we know the power behind the king of Babylon and the power behind the king of Tyre is who? Satan. So in Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, it describes Satan, how you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. That's where Lucifer comes from right there, the, the, the Latin translation of those Hebrew words. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zion. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds and will make myself like who? The most high God. That is the ultimate sin of the universe is to try to be as God is, right? That's why it's what led Adam and Eve to, to eating the forbidden fruit because they wanted to know what God knew. They wanted to be like God. The closest you can be like God is to believe in who? Jesus, yes. Peter says, then you become partakers of the divine nature when the Holy Spirit comes to live in you. That's the ultimate lie, is to believe that we can become as God is. That's what Satan did. Ezekiel 28, 12 through 14. Don't have time to read all of this. You need to go there. I'll just read a few. You were the seal of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Fast forward a little bit. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. Many see the fiery stones as other angels. 
You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Fast forward a little bit, your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. That's Isaiah 14, 12 through 15 first, and that was just Ezekiel 28, 12 through 14. So there is scriptural, scriptural evidence, theological, scriptural evidence, Old Testament, New Testament, that Satan is a real being, eternal, spiritual being. So the main question is, is that when did, when did, Jesus witnessed Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's, that's the question. And, and unfortunately, we don't know for sure the answer to that. I can give you some ideas. So, some, some believe that it happened what, what many would call primordial before, before history as we know it began. Others, began it, others believe it's a conglomeration of everything throughout Jesus' life that Jesus was able to see him fall again and again and again and again. Other people believe, I'll just read my notes here, did, did Jesus witness this fall as the 72 were out on their missionary journey? So with each demon that they expelled from these people that Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. I saw Satan fall like lightning, perhaps. Perhaps that's true, perhaps. Was Jesus speaking about the cumulative result of all the works from the beginning of his ministry until now and beyond the cross? And he summarizes all that activity as Jesus falling like lightning. Could it be possible? I think, I think it would be theologically sound to say that. Or is he speaking about the fall of Satan before the beginning of time? Because many people believe that Revelation 12 verses one through nine is speaking of a time that is outside the current time. I don't know, Revelation, and let me just tell you this, the theology you're getting today is as deep as it gets, amen? A -a amen. So, so, so it's just deep stuff. Revelation 12, one through nine, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Who's that? Israel, right? She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth, and another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so they might devour her child the moment he was born, Jesus, obviously. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. That, we know for a fact, is Jesus. Amen? Scepter of Jacob. She gave birth to a son. Her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Does spiritual war exist, Brother Shelby? You tell me. But he was not strong enough. Praise God, hallelujah, amen. And they lost their place where? In heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him Whew. is satan real yes. absolutely we know he was in the garden of eden in the form of the serpent and he will forever hold that title until he is consigned to the lake of fire for all 
eternity. So in summary, the disciples' ministry and our ministry in contemporary times spells defeat for Satan and his kingdom. So the missionary's ability to expel demons out of other people was, was a sign and evidence that the coming of Christ was real and that Satan's time was ending, coming to an end. So Christ shares the witness of Satan's defeat. Let's do the next one. Verse 19, Christ gives his power and authority to the missionaries. Verse 19, behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Wow. I mean, that sounds familiar. I mean, those of you that are familiar with commissioning passages in the New Testament, it's very reminiscent of Mark, very reminiscent of Matthew, just very reminiscent of, of these other passages. So the 72 and we, for that matter, because we are an extension of the apostolic era, the church is, for that matter, we have been given authority to tread, in other words, you could substitute there is trample, trample upon serpents and scorpions, which means over all the power of the enemy. That's a great place for an amen. amen. Just kidding. So why does he say serpents and scorpions? Most likely speaking metaphorically of Satan and his minions pointing back to Genesis 3 and the curse in the Garden of Eden. You remember Genesis 3, 15 and 16? So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, meaning had tempted Eve to eat of the fruit, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, meaning Jesus. He will crush your head and you will strike his is heal, meaning Jesus will kill the serpent, eliminating his power over those who believe in Jesus. That's what that means. Another thought, which I love as well, is Deuteronomy 8, 15 through 18. Listen to this, how perfectly this fits. He, meaning God, led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, <laughs> listen to this, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. Uh-huh, sound like every average American, amen? Something like that? But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. So when we think about, when we think about serpents and scorpions physically, how would we think of them? When we think of them. When you think of a serpent, what do you think about? I think about Angie screaming and calling me on the phone when I'm three states away that there's a snake in the house. I mean, what am I supposed to do? I'm three states away. So the neighbor had to come over and do battle and kill it with the shovel and drag it outside. You killed it. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. I thought the neighbor came and got it out and threw it away. Okay, so you wouldn't, you kill it, but you wouldn't touch it, right. But you think about a serpent, you think about venom. Where? In its fangs. 
and it wants to bite you and wants to squeeze the venom into your bloodstream and wants to kill you because that's what snakes do. When you think about scorpions, you think about poison in that tail and he wants to sting you and he wants to kill you because he wants to hurt you. That defines Satan, does it not? I mean, does that not perfectly define Satan? I mean, what does Satan want to do to us? He wants to kill us. He, want his, he wants his poison, he wants his poison to confuse your mind. That's, that's where he comes at you. Don't forget that. Don't ever forget that, that Satan comes at you in your mind. He wants to pervert your mind. He wants to flip it all upside down. He wants to use your carnality against you, make you all confused, make you not believe that what's true, the word of God, the scorpion, wants to sting you and he wants to kill you he wants to bring death he wants to bring death so he wants to confuse your mind with the poison of false theology and he wants to sting you and he wants to kill you and he wants you to go straight to hell that's what the enemy wants out that's what he wants he wants you and he wants me but we Jesus says, have been given God's authority in Christ we can tread on serpents and scorpions over the enemy and his schemes. Jesus has crushed his head on Calvary's cross and I would add, cut it off. Cut it off like David did Goliath, amen. Cut it off with the tomb. Can I get a witness? Nothing shall hurt you. Now this has to mean, this has to mean spiritually, okay? I want you to look at this right quick because somebody's gonna argue with me on this. When it says, when he says nothing shall hurt you, this has to be spiritual, because he just spent a whole commission telling them what? I'm sending you out as lamb among wolves. You might be persecuted as I am persecuted. He is not promising you that you're not going to be physically persecuted. He's telling you that spiritually, you're invincible. Amen? Invincible. Invincible. Romans 8.28, right? All things work for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future. Nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. We are more than conquerors in him. That can't mean just in the flesh. It has to mean for all eternity. Amen? All eternity. We are but a vapor in this life. The majority of our time we're going to spend with him is in the one that comes next. Isaiah 11, 6 and 8, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them, the cow will feed with the bear, the young will lie down, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, the infant will play near the cobra, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. That's the authority Jesus gives us in the life to come. Amen. Finally, and this is my favorite point, rejoice in the promise and not the power. But what do we normally want? Oh, yeah. We want the power. I've been so mad about this electric vehicle junk. I mean, I've been furious about all that. Going to take my V8s away from me? Are you serious? Are you serious? You're going to take my gas-guzzling V8 trucks away from me? I like power. Power, 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 and so do you. 
But Jesus says, don't get caught up in that. It's not about the power. It's about the promise. Now, how do we know he's not contradicting himself? Because he said something real similar in Matthew 20. When uh, he says this, he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Not so. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your what? Servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life for a ransom for many. So Jesus says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. (laughs) That's tough, man. That's tough. Yeah, I know it's cool. It's cool to be able to go out there and expel demons out of people. I mean, that's awesome. And it's definitely within my will because I called you to do it and I sent you to do it. But don't let that go to your head. Don't let that go to your head and don't get caught up in that. If you want to let something go to your head and get caught up in something, get caught up in the fact that you're bought and paid for by Jesus Christ and and he has given us the promises of eternal life and your name's in heaven. But that's not where we are. We're in the power. We want to dominate. We, we, want power. We, we want all this power. But Jesus says, no, you focus on the promise because your names are written in heaven. Revelation 21, 9 through 14, one of the seven angels who had seen the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of every very precious jewel, like a jasper clear crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at his gates. And on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. Here we are, verse 14. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. If their name is written there, our name is written there. Amen? Amen. One last stinger and then we'll close. Is it not enough that we are saved and destined to be with Jesus in heaven for all eternity? Is that not enough? Why is that not enough? I've always wondered about those that continue to be unsettled over wanting more and more from God when God has given us everything he has in Jesus Christ. Some have those desires for some great outbreaking of power and miracles. Why must we have all this extra sensationalism in Christianity when the most sensational thing about what we believe is the fact that we are saved, protected in him for all eternity, and all he's asked us to do, all he's asked us to do is testify to what he's done in our lives. That's it. Has that become so boring to some of us that we got to engineer something else? What has happened to some of us? All we have to do is love him, tell other people what God has done for us. That's all he's asking. Don't get caught up in the power. We got it. 
There ain't no doubt about that. It's there. Who has, who has sensed and felt his power before in your heart and in your mind? Who in here is saved? If you're saved, you have felt his power. You know it's in you. You know it's there. But he says, don't get, don't get hung up in that. Your name's written in heaven. The promise. Cling to that. Cling to that. And the reason reasons is, is because all this, this power, miracle-working power here, down here, there's a really short window where that's going to be used, and then from that point forward, it's all about what comes next. Amen? That's what we need to be hung up on, is that. We work down here. We're not done yet. We're not done yet. But what we got coming is going to blow our minds. Amen? Amen. So, the missionaries return joyful, not joyless. Christ shares his witness of Satan's defeat. Christ gives his power and authority to the missionaries, and we need to rejoice in the promise not the power. I am done. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and Lord for getting me through every Sunday during this time because Lord, I approach it with fear and trembling. I'm always just overburdened about whether or not I am properly bringing your word to, to preach your gospel to those that listen. And Father, I know Lord, I, I know the sincerity of my heart when I do it, Lord. I just, I'm just always concerned. And so I thank you so much for being with me and being with us today. I pray if there's one here that does not know you, that, that your word has, has cut to their heart like the double-edged sword that it is, laid them bare, helped them see their needs before you and that only can be filled by your son, Jesus Christ. And we celebrate that, Lord, because we, we have walked the same path. We know that we're not perfect. We know that we're sinners and that we've got to have you. have got to have your son, Jesus Christ, in our hearts. We know that. We know that. We know that Satan is real, and we pray for those that would awaken, that do not believe that he is real, to know that they have an enemy that is trying to destroy them, and the only refuge is your son, Jesus Christ, and his resurrection from the dead. And so, Father, we end today hoping and praying that someone will receive you before the song ends. And we ask this in Christ's name.